You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Well, good morning, church. I invite you to uh, take your take your Bibles and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 10, or maybe you're still there. Uh, if you didn't, <clears throat> excuse me. If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, you can. Uh, take one of the pew Bibles that is in front of you there, uh, page 815, if it's the uh, thicker one. If you happen to have one of the thinner ones, it is page 764. Page, 100, page 815 in the thicker ones, 764 in the thin ones. We're in Matthew chapter uh, 10 this morning, continuing our, our study through his gospel. The Bible is comprised of 66 books. It was written by over 40 authors or about 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. The authors were very diverse in who they were, in their background, in their vocation. The Bible was written in a number of different uh, locations. In fact, it was written on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, all under a variety of circumstances. Peter, in his second letter, tells us this in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. With the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D., the 66 books of the Bible as we know it today, the 39 in the Old Testament, the 27 in the New Testament, were affirmed as the Holy Bible, God's inspired word to us. Therefore, as we come to read it, as we come to study it, as we come to know and understand it, we must remain aware of the truth that the Bible contains a thread that begins at the very beginning of Genesis and runs all the way through to the end of Revelation. This is important so that we don't distort, so that we don't dilute, so we don't divest the meaning of what God desires to say to us and have us know from His Word that He has given to us. So as we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew currently, it's helpful, actually it's vital, that we keep the current section of Scripture that we are in in the context and connected to the passage that precedes it, as well as the one that comes after it, and in relation to the entire gospel itself, as well as to the whole Bible. Because what God gave to us, He gave to us that we would understand it all together as a unit. We must be careful, we must be diligent not to treat Scripture as pithy sayings or memes or wall art and lose the very meaning of why God included every book, every chapter, every passage, and every verse. Because together they form that one unit, a complete whole conveying who God is and His love toward us and His plan for us. This we must remember every time we read and study Scripture. We're in Matthew chapter 10 today. As we begin to look at verses 11 through 23, I remind you that Matthew 
chapter 10 is the second of six long discourses of Jesus' teaching in this gospel. And it is a transition. It's a transition from Jesus, who is the sole preacher of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to now having his disciples, his apostles, once he is sending forth, to take up that message. He has called these twelve, he has commissioned these twelve, and he is now coaching these twelve to preach the very same message that he preached. The message that not only did he preach, but also the ministry that he did, as is recorded for us in chapters 8 and 9. So these 12 disciples were about to embark as Jesus' emissaries, his ambassadors. And he's instructing them where he would have them to go and not to go in verses 5 and 6. What to do in verses 7 and 8. And how to prepare for this mission that he is sending them on in verses 9 and 10. And now we come to the point where he says, here's what you're to do upon arrival as we look at verses 11 through 15 and what they are to expect as they begin to share this message in verses 16 through 23. To this point, Jesus has called the twelve He's commissioned them for ministry and he's given them his authority and clarifying with complete certainty what they are to preach and what they are to do. We need to keep in mind the specifics of this account that it is for these 12 disciples whom Jesus called his apostles, the ones that he is sending with a specific message to perform a specific task. And as a reminder, that message is to preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that task is, as they, were go, as they were to go out, they were to heal the sick. They were to cleanse the lepers. They were to raise the dead. They were to cast out demons. So as we look at verse 11, these instructions and the coaching that Jesus is giving to these 12 has to do now with what they're going to find as they go, how they will be received, interacted with, and what they are to do and to say in response. Verse 11, And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. Tells his disciples, doesn't matter what city, doesn't matter what village. Look for someone who is worthy. And that's the key word, worthy. Someone who is of worth, of weight. Look for a person or a household that is worthy. The disciples were told by Jesus, you're going to go specifically to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so it doesn't matter if you're going into a city one uh, town that is, is fortified with defenses, that is 
ready to protect itself from others, or if as you're going out, you stop in what would be known as a village or just these dwellings of, of tents that were kind of together, and they're there in the desert. There are no defenses around them. Wherever you go, you are to inquire, Jesus says. You are to search or examine closely. You are to try to find out who's willing to provide hospitality and meals and lodging while you're in that city or while you're in that village for the duration of the ministry time that you are there. You see, the disciples were to be focused on the message. The disciples were to be focused on the ministry of the mission. So it was up to them that they were to choose carefully a worthy person so as not to be moving from house to house around the city or the village and being distracted from the mission because they're wondering, well, where am I going to be at tonight? Because we all know that when that is, when we're in one particular place or, or village or, or city and we're moving around from time to time, that takes time and that takes energy. And then we miss out on being able to focus on the things that we are there to do. And so this is what the disciples, Jesus says, are to do. They are to inquire. This is an interesting term. It's only used two other times uh, in the New Testament. Once was when Herod gives his instructions to the Magi to go search carefully for the newborn king in Matthew chapter 2, verse 8. And the second time it's used, it's, a type of, it's used as a type of interrogation the disciples would conduct in order to confirm Jesus' post-resurrection identity in John chapter 21. So if you're familiar with those two accounts of Scripture, you know the scrutiny, you know the attention to detail, the thoroughness that was to be had in those processes. It was a high priority. And that's the same word Jesus uses here. For these disciples, in choosing a person to host them until they leave that city or village, a person who is worthy, axios, one who is deserving, one who is valuable. The term carries the, the meaning of weight or of, of worth. What Jesus says to his disciples here is, look for a person who's going to respond favorably to you. But more than that, they're committed to be your host. They're committed to hospitality. They're committed to take care of your needs. They don't necessarily have to be committed to your cause, but that they would be committed to taking care of your needs. And when the disciples find that person, they're to enter that house and they're to stay there until they leave that city. I had the uh, privilege to to spend nine months with a music drama team traveling the U.S. and Canada a number of years ago. And the goal, the partnership was with churches to be able to encourage them and to reach into their community and 
in some ways and, uh, that we could assist them and be of benefit to them. And so it was that we would go typically, most typically, into a, into a city, into a church for a week at a time. And so that church um, would find people that would house us, that would care for our needs of shelter and, and meals uh, while, we were, while we were in their community. And it was the, the kind of thing where they would find people that would say, yes, we are committed to the cause of caring for them. We'll take care of them. We'll get them where they need to go. We'll feed them as they need to be fed. They won't have to worry about any of those things, which then in turn helps us to be able to focus on what we were there to do in partnering with the people of the church and for the ministry. Now, here's what's, what's interesting about that. As we, as we traveled for, for nine months, what I discovered and I realized that all these churches looked for people within their own, within their own church. But not everybody's house that I stayed at was a full-on person who was a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. They were open to taking care of our needs. They were open to the message that we had, but they weren't necessarily committed disciples of Christ. And that's what, it's very similar to what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. Find the person, find the household that is worthy. They'll take care of your needs. Because remember in verses 8 and 9 that we looked at last week, they're what the disciples were to take with. In fact, the list is what they're not to take with. So you go back and look at those verses. Trusting God will provide. And so as they go into this, to the city, as they go into this village, they go and the people there are to, to provide those needs for them and care for them. As Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, they're going as his representatives, his delegates. They were going to be about the business of Jesus. They're not going to be about their own doing. Therefore, the reception that they received is going to be a gauge of how Jesus would be received in that city, in that village. How ready these people were for the Messiah of whom the Old Testament prophets wrote. Since these 12 designated apostles by Jesus were coming on his behalf, it would be deemed an honor for the people in that village or in that area to welcome them and to host them. And so if they did, this was going to be a measure of how much they were open to Jesus and his message. Verse 12, Jesus says, As you enter the house, give it your greeting. In Luke chapter 10, we find another account of Jesus sending out disciples. In fact, there he's sending out 70 disciples. And there's some similarities between between these missions that Jesus is sending these 12 on and that Jesus is sending those 70 on. But in Luke chapter 10, where he's sending out those 70, Luke records the actual words that he would have those 70 say as they arrive at that home. And those words recorded for us in Luke 10, verse 5, is peace be to this house. Peace be to this house. Their greeting was to be one of peace, one of wishes for harmony 
and tranquility for the person and for his household. And then he says, if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. If it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. The same word for house is used in verses 12 and 13, and it means this, this home or this dwelling. But actually more than that, it means the household. It's actually more about the people than it is the physical structure. It's the concept of family, those who are related by, by blood and, and marriage and, and maybe even the slaves that, that were staying in that house, this idea of, of worker boss. And so if that household, so if those people are worthy, give it your blessing. So there's been some diligence, and there is to have been some diligence by the disciples going into this vetting of this, of this person, of this, of this household, this home that they would choose to stay at, that they are to enter, and as they enter, they are to give it their greeting. And if the house is found worthy, if it's found deserving, if it's found of weight, of value, then they are to give it blessing of peace. If it is a welcoming place, if they are going to be the home base for the disciples who are going to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand, who are going to heal sick, who are going to cleanse lepers, who are going to cast out demons, then give it your blessing of peace. If, however, Jesus says, it's not worthy, take back the blessing of peace. In other words, leave that house, leave that household. turns out that you thought it was worthy, they, they presented correctly, but they're not, then let your greeting of peace return to you, meaning don't stay there, move on to a different person, a different household. Verse 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. It could be that the person, again, just projected themselves as something that, that they weren't. You discovered that they weren't worthy. So as you leave, you shake the dust off your feet. It's a symbolic gesture of God's rejection of that home or that city to the point that they didn't even want to touch the dirt from that place. And that's why you shake off the dust because it was an inhospitable place. And that shaking off the dust symbolizes the rejection of the Jewish, of that Jewish city as if it were a despised Gentile city whose very dust is unwanted. Because Jesus says it's going to be more tolerable in verse 15 for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The judgment on such people is going to be greater than the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now if you're familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah from the Old Testament you will know that they were two of the most notorious centers of sin that were destroyed by fire and brimstone. And so rejecting the disciples' message is seen as a very serious sin, worse even than the gross rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. And that shaking the dust off one's feet was a ritual of renunciation used by Jews 
when they returned to Israel from these Gentile territories. Jesus introduced this warning against rejecting the city with this formula, I tell you the truth, meaning listen carefully because what I'm about to say has great significance. The warning is stern because the, serious, the seriousness of the offense that it is to reject the Messiah and King. See, this city, this village would have the opportunity to hear of Jesus and the Messiah. But if they were going to push back, if they were going to say, no, we don't want that here, shake the dust off and Jesus says it's going to be worse on the day of judgment than it would have been for Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were two cities who had no longer had an opportunity to respond to the truth of the Messiah. So Jesus clarifies for the disciples who to go to, who not to go to, where to go, what to take, what not to take. And when you get there, where to stay and when to go. The purpose of Jesus' call is to share His message with lost people. Those who don't know God, know His love for mankind, know His creation. And Jesus calls disciples today to speak His name, to speak the truth of Scripture, to speak the gospel, the good news of the Savior for the forgiveness of sin with those around us. We're to use that which God has given us through skills, abilities, and giftedness to make a difference in the lives of others by sharing who Jesus is, what He has done, and what He will do in your life. To share the fact that Jesus did for you and for me something we couldn't do on our own. And that's the forgiveness of sin by His death on the cross. And Jesus calls us to take that message. We're called by Jesus to be workers in His harvest field. But what happens if you don't feel adequate? What happens if you're not sure? What happens if you're, you don't really see yourself taking that message into the harvest field, being the one that God wants to use? You see, Jesus calls, commissions, and coaches His disciples. Jesus qualifies the called. Jesus doesn't call those who are qualified. I'm Rod Zimmerman. I'm one of the elders here at Century Baptist Church. I grew up in a, in a small town and grew up in a Christian family. And at the age of uh, nine years old, I came to know the Lord. When I went to college, I didn't know what to major in. I may, so I majored in undecided for three years. Through counselors, through friends, they said, you should consider medical school. How does a person go from the farm and to become a doctor, even getting into medical school? It was in my last year of medical school that I really was confronted with uh, why was I not very satisfied? And the, the Lord, through, a, through one of our sister churches that I was attending, in Minot at the time, that uh, I uh, just recommitted my life to the Lord. I said, this, this cannot continue. And at that point, I just said, Lord, you're getting me through medical school. This is all you're doing. I'm so grateful, but 
I'm, I'm, I'm still doubting. What is your plan? And I just begged, Lord, now you, you take over. I went into residency. Uh, my halfway through the first year, uh, again, I was involved in one of our churches. And well, one morning uh, before the service, one of my preceptors uh, asked me just before service, Rod, would you consider going to Cameroon to fill in for a missionary family there that was coming home on furlough? They had no replacement. If he had not asked me, I would still be searching for Lord, what are you wanting me to do? I went to Cameroon for one year, and in that one year, God just confirmed uh, what he wanted me to do. Uh, I first went out in uh, the summer of 1978, and we came home uh, in the summer of 2009. And so about 27 years, we were actually on the field in Cameroon. But before I went, even when that uh, doctor asked me, I, I can't do this. I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even licensed yet. You want me to go to Cameroon in Africa? And, and the truth is, God, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He will not call you to something and expect that you're fully capable. There, there was a time when it just felt so busy. At times I was the only one at a Bingo Baptist Hospital. And I began to question, Lord, am I really being your witness when I'm this tired? I just go from one patient, I've done surgery, it's night, uh, they're, they're knocked on the door and there's some other one that we walked over to the hospital. There was no phone, so the nurse would walk over about half a mile to where I was, knock on the door with her bush lamp, say, please doctor. And she brought me the paper chart and I said, okay, here, start out with this. I'm right behind you. I'll be on my way. But I was so tired and I said, Lord, are you sure? And uh, somehow the assurance came that I have you just, just where I want you. It's okay, I am with you. I learned how to do surgery. I, I uh, learned how to take care of leprosy patients. Yeah, how many had I seen in residence here in medical school? Zero. <laughs> but uh, the Lord provided the way, the training, but most of all, He doesn't send us out without going before us, going with us. He does not abandon us. Jesus called Rod and commissioned and, and coached him and provided for him for the mission. He'll do the same for us. I'm not saying you're to go to Cameroon or you're to go to a foreign country to take his message there. But I am saying that what Scripture's telling us is that Jesus is calling us and, and commissioning us to go into the harvest fields. That might be your workplace, that might be your neighbor, that might be somewhere in your neighborhood, it might be with those you have uh, hobbies with that you do together, it might be your extended family or your immediate family. But he's asking us to go and he's telling his disciples 
exactly what they can expect. And as we come to verse 16, we discover that Jesus is broadening these instructions now. And he's telling us what we are to be looking for, what we are to be aware of, and what to do when rejection in the form of persecution comes, which he guarantees it will. Look at verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That word there, behold, is a transition word. It's, a, it's really a wake-up word. So if there is, at any given point, as the disciples are nodding off, maybe, or kind of going like, oh, I'm starting to daydream with all the stuff that Jesus is telling us to do. When he says, behold, it awakens them. It catches their attention. And he says, guys, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. There's going to be obstacles that you're going to face. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be repercussions for the fact that you are being my disciple and you are taking the message that I am giving you to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And for you and I today, it's taking the message of Jesus Christ into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces. There are going to be, there is going to be resistance and roadblocks. We can expect the very same thing as we live for Jesus. You see, it's kind of all fun and games until you say something controversial or hard to do. Or until you do something that goes against the norm, the masses of the people, or the perceived masses of the people, and the establishment of how things are done. And verse 16 serves to introduce a theme of persecution which will dominate the next section of chapter 10. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, that would have got their attention. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If you have any idea of sheep, you know its antithesis is the wolf. If you know anything about wolves, you know they like sheep. One of the reasons they like sheep is sheep aren't that bright. Sheep seem to have an intellectual disadvantage over most other animals. But beyond that, sheep don't have a way to defend themselves. And so Jesus is telling the disciples here, I send you out as, as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's not a warm and fuzzy. That really can't be making them think, like, wow, this would be great. And then we'll stop at 7-Eleven on the way and you know, maybe get a pizza. You know, this is going to be great. No. Jesus is clarifying, look, this is, this is going to be dangerous. I can't help but wonder, as Jesus is talking to the twelve, and they're, they're listening to him, and they come to this verse. What happens to their countenance? I mean, I would think it would kind of go from a, okay, got it, good, good, what? I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, if any of the disciples kind of went, excuse me, Jesus, i got a question here. What did you just say? Because here's what I thought I heard you say, and I was with you to this point. In the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to outline for them, and it actually, it applies to us. 
The fact that if we're going to take the message of Jesus Christ into a world that doesn't know him, you're going to be met with resistance. Some ways you could say it this way. This isn't for the faint of heart. They're going to come after you. You're not going to be liked. You see, because it's all fun and games until you say something that's a little controversial. Or it doesn't go with the thinking of the current day. Sheep into a pack of wolves is how they're going to be sent out. If the sheep stay by the shepherd, if the sheep pay attention to what the shepherd tells them to do, they'll be okay. They'll be just fine because that's the shepherd's role. That's what the shepherd does. It's why as we get to John's gospel in John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. So here's the thing. I find it, I find it a bit difficult. I find it a bit odd. I find it a bit puzzling. That we, as, that we as Christians, those of us who have said, we've trusted in Jesus Christ as a Savior for our sins, when He gives us a task like this, we're all like, eh, I don't know. I mean, I get you can save me from your sins because you could die on a cross and you could do what I wasn't able to do, but yeah, I don't know. Jesus, you big enough to take care of this? I mean, they could hurt my feelings. They could actually take something away that belonged to me. And we somehow, we struggle with, man, I'm not sure Jesus can do this. <laughs> yeah, Jesus can do this. He's proven himself. He can do this, and he will do this. So we're sent out as sheep among wolves. We're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So while on mission to preach and to heal and to raise the dead, to cast out demons, to cleanse, cleanse lepers, the twelve disciples are to be aware of who they are in the midst of. They're in the midst of wolves. They're, they're in the midst of fierce animals that desire to destroy and devour sheep. So Jesus says you need to be shrewd. That means to have the capacity to understand the daily things of life, to be aware, to be wise, to be prudent to be sensible, to be thoughtful, to engage your mind and your brain and on the alert. And then he says, you're to be as innocent as doves. You're to be pure. You're to be unmixed. The dove was a ceremonially clean animal that was used in sacrifice. So as these disciples and as you and I go out into the harvest fields, we are to go in a manner of shrewd as serpent, innocent as doves. Why? Because men are coming for you to do you harm. All types of people will betray you and persecute Jesus' followers. And the persecution is about to come from religious leaders, from government authorities, from even with your family and from culture. And it sounds a lot like today. And the followers and what followers of Jesus are faced with today. Verse 17 says, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, would reject the message. Jesus is telling them, not all the religious leaders are going to be on board with this. 
And as a result, you're going to be beaten. You're going to be whipped. You're going to be flogged. Why? Because the message of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't fit tradition. It doesn't fit the perceived, preconceived ideas. It doesn't fit the understanding of what it should look like, of what we believe it to be. And since it is different than the religious establishment of the day, you're going to be rejected, and yes, you will be persecuted. And it wasn't a if, it's a when. So it's not, well, it may or may not happen. Jesus is saying, it's going to happen. Jewish religious leaders are going to reject the message. That you can be certain of. They're going to hand you over, it says, to the courts, and you're going to be scourged in the synagogues. And that's speaking of a punishment that the disciples would face. Not a mob violence. Rather, this was a result of a judicial action. Court is going to be held and you're going to be found guilty and as a result, you're going to be beaten, whipped, flogged. This is becoming the reality of Jesus' disciples in the 21st century. You see, if you're going to hold the Scripture... If you're going to believe that what the Bible says is true as it was written and not changing over time dependent on the winds of religious acceptability and cultural shifts of endorsement, you are going to find yourself at odds with those in power, whether they be religious, government, family, or culture. And we're going to continue to look at this more closely at this rejection from government, family, culture in the next weeks. But today, for just a few minutes, I want us to consider the evangelical church and the monumental shifts that have been made and in many places adopted as evangelical Christianity. Now, when I use that phrase, evangelical Christianity, we should be asking, you should be asking a question, what does he mean? Fifty years ago, it actually meant something. Nowadays, it doesn't mean a whole lot anymore, but when I'm using it, here's how I'm using it. I'm saying an evangelical Christianity is those who place claim that the Bible is the Word of God. Okay? That's what they claim. And it's the sole authority. They claim that God is the Creator and Jesus Christ is His Son who died for their sins. But as you might well be aware, those who claim to be evangelical Christians... It's no longer unanimous that Jesus is the only way to God the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is scriptural. There are pockets, if you will, of Christianity today. I was like, well, you know, let's not be so rigid, shall we? As we talk about the Bible in evangelical Christianity... And I, I thought about giving statistics for some of this, and I thought, it doesn't matter. Because we all know that 83% of statistics are made up on the spot anyway. It doesn't matter because it's the reality that it is, is out there. And if the percentage is 1 or if the percentage is 32, what's the big deal? It's, they're identifying as such but not being as such. And so as we talk about the Bible... In evangelical Christianity, not all believe that everything in the Bible is now true. That it happened the way the Bible reads. And then it gets even worse. When we talk about marriage, 
there is and has been room for acceptance of something other than marriage in the evangelical church, other than one man and one woman in the evangelical church, for a while now. Well, we kind of got to, you know, we got to kind of think about it. As we talk about the sanctity of life, it's a no-brainer. Yet, there are pro-choice who supposedly align with Scripture. And as we talk about sin in the evangelical church, we seek to downplay certain behaviors rather than holding ourselves to what God has told us in Scripture. And the reason we downplay those behaviors will touch on us as we get to culture because culture is infiltrating the church. And instead of the church... The followers of Jesus going, no, this is the Word of God. This is it, right here. This is what we believe. This is what we hold to. We look around at culture and we go like, well, you know, that kind of makes sense and it's been around for quite a while, so maybe, just maybe, maybe this is a little too strict. The Word of God is not a little too strict. The Word of God is exactly what He wants us to know. It's 66 books written by about 40 authors over 1,500 years with one continuous thread from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation, which is all about Jesus Christ, His Son, coming to redeem humanity. And if you're here this morning and you've been redeemed, if you've been bought back because of Jesus' death on the cross, if you are His follower, if you are His disciple, then Jesus is calling you, commissioning you, and coaching you to go on mission to tell others. So here's the bottom line for today. To whom is God sending you as His disciple to preach the kingdom of heaven, to preach the gospel? And will you trust in God's provision to take care of you, not to have everything done before you go, but to take care of you as you go? And then, will you go? And lastly, when will you go? Because remember, Jesus said, the fields are ripe for harvest. So plead, beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And now he's calling his disciples to go into that harvest. And he's calling you and me to do the same. And as Jesus calls us, he commissions us, and he coaches us for all that he has for us to do to care for every aspect of our needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've made it very clear in your word, and you've given us a a great passage here, a great account of Jesus interacting with his, his 12 disciples whom he he calls apostles because he's commissioning them for a very specific task and purpose as he's sending them out in this mission. And on the bigger scale, you're looking at your children who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. You're calling them and you're commissioning them and you're coaching us and you're instructing us. God, may we answer that call to go, to be workers in your harvest field, knowing that you will provide all that we need, that you 
will take care of us. That you don't call the qualified, you qualify the called. So may we be obedient and go even this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.